Revelation chapter number 2. As we've looked at the seven churches of Asia Minor, we've had a look at the church at Ephesus, which we said was a drifting church. We've had a look at the church of Smyrna last Sunday evening, which we said was a delightful church. Now we're going to have a look at Pergamos this evening, which was a divided church. So, Revelation chapter number 2. And verse 12, the word of God reads this. Oh, hold on. There we go. And the word of God reads this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saying he, saving he that receiveth it. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for, um, Lord, all we've been able to sing. We thank you for the day that you've given us, the praises that you've put in our lips. And, Lord, we just pray as we come to this point in time where we open your word that we would indeed learn the lessons from these churches of old. Lord, we know that they were indeed real congregations of real people facing the real battle. And, Lord, also we know that they show us spiritual conditions that we have to watch for as the church in this day and age. So I pray you would help us, Lord. I pray you would teach us, you would uplift us, whatever it may be. I ask, Lord, that you would use me, uh, give me strength, Lord, to speak with clarity. And Lord, I pray that uh, our time together in your word would be a blessing for us all. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me get my map up. Hopefully it doesn't flick. So here we are. Um, we've John is here. He's had his revelation uh, of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, as we said. Uh, we looked at Ephesus, that was our first church. We went to Smyrna, now we're going to Pergamon. And remember, um, this is a, a road, well-used road, connecting the cities. This is, this is a, almost an ancient postal route. And uh, as this letter was passed, Pergamon would have been the third uh, church to receive this. So, what do we know about Pergamon? It's important to do a little bit of background because, again, um, the Lord uses some of the things in regarding the traditions or the history of the place uh, when he's uh, teaching to the church. And as you see there, Pergamon was situated about 40 miles. That's, that's about 40 mile distance past uh, Smyrna there. Um, you know, you can see this is the area, this is western Turkey nowadays. 
Asia Minor. Um, it stood on a hill. It had a prominent position on a hill in the middle of a wide, fertile plain. Uh, the history of the city of Pergamon begins uh, about the uh, 3rd century BC. Um, later on, going into the 2nd century BC, it became a Roman province. Um, by the 1st century AD, there were three large temples there that were associated uh, with emperor worship. The first temple being built there for emperor worship in 29 BC. Um, it had heathen temples uh, that were erected in honor of its gods. So you had a temple for Zeus, a temple for Aphrodite, uh, a temple for uh, Asclepios, or Asclepios uh, the god of medicine. Um, so you'll see, you would have seen that there. Uh, a very cultural city, um, 10,000 seater amphitheater in the city, uh, a library that reportedly contained over 200,000 works that was second only to Alexandria at the time in terms of its, uh, its prestige. Um, and one of the things that they're associated with, 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 with Pergamon, which is quite I don't know, we either like these things or you don't. You either find these things interesting or not. But um, due to a shortage of papyrus, of course, papyrus was, was you know, uh, brought by the, the Egyptians to be able to, to write upon. So due to a shortage of that, um, at Pergamon was a place where they invented something a, a little different. They, um, they used a material from calfskin and they were able to start to write on it. And... Uh, it was called uh, Pergaminius or Pergamina after the city. It's where we get the word parchment from. So um, they come up with this new new uh, type of material for writing. Now, the name Pergamos, it has a, a dual meaning. It's a combination of two Greek words, uh, Pergos and Gamos. Um, some people interpret the name as being referred to as castle or high tower, but it can also mean being united or married or united by marriage. A literal translation of Pergamos would read like this, married to the high tower. And some people have suggested that the high tower in reference is Christ, but again, in the context of, of the letter and what's written about the letter, um, I'm going to point out, and hopefully we'll see that actually I believe this is the state that it's talking to, and really that Pergamos is, is, begins a period in church history where church and state are intermarried, and we're going to see that as we go through. Um, so Pergamos, you know, it was a place where um, there was a lot of compromise um, in, in, in terms of the, the, the period in church history that we refer to um, where there's a lot of compromise where it's easier to go along with the state religion than it is to really maybe stand on completely biblical principles. And so what happened was there was a lot of uh, um, you know, benefits to being part of this system that was set up of church and state. You know, it was easier to get on in life and um, a lot of people did that. But so while uniting to the world might have made life a little bit easier for uh, people in this period, this divided church period that we're going to look at, it certainly came with compromises and it came with having to sacrifice. And they, in time, found themselves married uh, more to the state than they did to the Lord. Um, Pergamos itself, as I've said, was the home of emperor worship. Um, it had the first temple that was dedicated to a living emperor. That was Caesar Augustus. 
And of course, the emperors you know, were treated like demigods in Rome because they brought peace and stability. Um, they were referred to um, by people who worshipped them as Lord God and Lord and Saviour. So again, you know, adopting that place of worship, uh, people in the Roman Empire were required by law to offer sacrifices to them. Um, and show an allegiance to Rome. So emperor worship was considered patriotic. It's what you did to show yourself as a good citizen of the Roman Empire. Now, as I said, in, in, uh, Pergamos didn't begin as a Roman province. It was handed over to Rome by uh, King Ad- Adalus III, 133 BC or so. He handed it over to Rome to get protection from the Syrians, and then it became a Roman province, and it was um, Pergamos was the, the, the center or the capital of the judicial system of the province, of the area that was given over um, by the Romans. So it had this uh, standing within the area as being the judicial capital of, of the province. Now that's important. That's important because one of the aspects of having this um, prestige of being a judicial capital was that in the Roman Empire you had what was known as the right of the sword. And the right of the sword um, in, in Latin is gladii was given to these judicial capitals and what it meant was that they could execute as and when they wanted to without referring to a higher court of Rome. Okay, they had that ability. And we know um, from uh, Paul and his, his account in, in Rome uh, how that the Romans, there had to be authority um, sought from Rome for certain things. Well, this judicial capital had the right of the sword. And the right of the sword gave them the right to capital punishment, to do what they wanted, and to judge how they wanted without going to a higher authority in Rome. Now, why is that important? Why, why, why did I tell you that? Well, remember how I've said that every time the Lord writes to, or speaks to one of these churches, he goes back to one aspect of his unveiling, given in Revelation chapter number 1, and he starts to share and speak about himself in some aspect that relates specifically to the church that he's writing to. So if you look at Revelation chapter number 2 and verse 12, the Lord introduces himself as who? He says, Unto the angel in the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he which has the sharp, what? Sword with two edges. Why is that important? Because he's writing to the church in the place that had the right of the sword, the right to judge over life and death. And the Lord introduces himself as the one that has the sharp sword. He is the judge. And he introduces himself as such to these people. And again, that's what they needed to hear. So he uses an aspect that they were familiar with. Those people gathered knew knew far more than any of us gathered here about this right of the sword. So they would have known exactly what the Lord was saying to them when he said he is the judge. And of course the the word of God is the judge. Uh, John 12 verse 48. You can turn there if you want. I'll read it to you. It says, He that rejecteth me receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So the word of God is going to be the the judge in the last day. And, And here the Lord introduces himself as the one that has the sharp sword to the place that had the right of the sword. So he was speaking directly into them over their circumstance, over their situation, saying to them, let me paraphrase a little bit, saying to them that I know that Rome, uh, the 
people that are, are over you have some form of judicial right over life and death to judge you. But I want you to know that I'm the judge. I'm the ultimate judge. And, and, and I think that would have been a word of encouragement, certainly, for those people when they heard that. So that's a little bit of, of background about Pergamos and, and um, you know, its place in the scheme of things, that it was a judicial capital. Um, the name kind of means married to the high tower. We're going to see that it's really going to point us to a period in church history where there's a marriage of church and state, and, and we'll see that in a little bit. So let's get on with getting on. And first of all, we'll go through. So we're, we're treating each church the same way. We're going to have a look, first of all, at the commendation. What does the Lord have to say about this church that is good? And he does have some good stuff to say about this church. Verse 13, he says this phrase again, I know thy works. So again, there's encouragement there that the Lord does know the works that are done for him. And then he says this, and where thou dwellest. And I like that. I like that for many aspects. We're going to look at where they, where they dwell. But, it, you know, the Lord knows the context that you're in. He knows. He knows your works and he knows where you're working. Right? He knows. And he knows that some places are tougher going than other places. He knows that. And it's good to know that he knows that. Because, I, honestly, I... You know, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think the, 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 the Western mission field, it may be a little, seem a little bit easier physically, but it is the hardest mission field that there is. Because people are so dead to, to, to the concept of a God and to be accountable to that God and are so self-sufficient that it's absolutely, it's a hard mission field. This country is a hard mission field. You know, it's, 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 all intents and purposes, there are no Christian nations, really. But, uh, you know, we use the term post-Christian nation. And it's just a reflection of, of where society is. And, you know, it's a hard mission fail. You, you know it. I know it. But the Lord knows it too. The Lord knows it too. And he doesn't miss that. He knows it's tough. And I like that the Lord knows us and doesn't forget that, you know, it may be a little tougher here. And... He's with us. He knows our works. He knows where we dwell. And this is what he says to the church at Pergamon. Oh, Karen, stop. <laughs> Don't touch anything, please. I know your works and where you dwellest. <laughs> so he knows. And where do they dwell? This is what the Lord goes on. Even where Satan's seat is. So the Lord recognizes that these people are living in a tough area, so tough that he refers to it as, as the, the seat of Satan, the throne of Satan. Let me paraphrase it a little. It's the base of Satan's operations. Satan began in, in Babylon, working in Babylon. You can look in your history book uh, there and see uh, ancient Babylon and, and all that came out of ancient Babylon with Nimrod. From there, uh, when that fell, he moved to Pergamos. And later on down the line, he's going to move to Rome. And then finally, it returns full circle. And he comes back to Babylon as his place of uh, operation, as his political and economic capital. You can read about that in Zechariah 5, Revelation 8. We will get there eventually and we'll, we'll deal with that. So we'll not talk about it too much uh, tonight. 
His religious capital will be Jerusalem, but his economic and political capital will be Babylon once again. And, you know, um, when we think about this, how Satan can have bases of operation in different places, it, it is very true that, that you know, um, as you go around the world, if you do a lot of traveling, and I traveled a fair bit to different places, even if you traveled up and down the UK, you know, you'll go to some places and, and you, you, you just feel that there's a darkness there more than other places. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fact, you know. I often, whenever I've, I was traveling, any time I'm going down near uh, towards Stonehenge and down that way, it always feels just there's an oppression in the air. I've been to places in, in Romania where you can just, it's just the enemies having a field day and, and you can feel it. And, and, and that's what happens in the world and our enemy walks to and fro seeking whom he may devour. But here we're dealing with Pergamos, and this is where Satan's seat or Satan's throne is. And the city itself, Pergamos, was known, as I've said earlier, for an altar to Zeus. And again, when you look at these gods, and, and you know, and not to trivialize this, you know, I, I, must, I must, must say this, that we don't want to trivialize our enemy. We don't want to laugh him off like it's some, you know, he's not a powerful foe, he is. Um... But when you, when you see Zeus and you see all these different gods, they're just manifestations of, of the devil who presents himself as an angel of light. You'll see this through history. You'll see this um, with the goddess Diana, Ashtoreth, um, Mary upon that cross, and uh, in, in, in Catholicism. You'll see it's just manifestations. And Zeus was just one of them. And there's an altar to Zeus, but it's not an altar to Zeus. It's an altar to Satan. Let's cut the, the nonsense out and say who it is an altar to. And any altar to a false god is an altar to the devil, Satan, the accuser, the enemy. And there was a, a monumental altar for Zeus at Pergamos. It was erected there early in the 1st and 2nd century BC. Um, dedicated to Zeus, dedicated to Athena. And um, the ruins of this altar were discovered uh, by a German engineer, Carl Wilhelm Human, in 1878. In, in the early 1900s, um, what happened was that they, they moved this and a museum was constructed in Berlin to house the fragments of this altar. Um, they were transported from the site in Turkey to Berlin and uh, the Turkish government agreed that the, the uh, foundation of this ancient altar, this altar to Zeus, also known as Satan's throne, became the property of uh, Germany. So 1930, uh, it was opened um, to uh, the public, and, and that, so that's it there. Um, and, and obviously it's a reconstruction, they've got some of it, and then they've reconstructed what this altar to Zeus was like. So 1930, it's on display there. 1901, early 1900s, it's moved to Germany. It's reconstructed. Uh, then it's uh, reconstructed uh, a bit further and put on display in 1930. And um, then a few years later in the timeline, excuse me, uh, the Nazi party's chief architect, if you, you know, you like your Second World War stuff, uh, Albert Speer, was commissioned by Hitler uh, to design parade grounds in Nuremberg for party rallies. And Speer, Albert Speer turned to this 
uh, altar of Zeus for inspiration. And using this, he uh, created the colossal grandstand. If, if you've seen this in, in the, in the, in the um, documentaries or whatever, known as the Zeppelin Tribune. And this is where all the kind of mass rallies were, were held by, by the Nazis. So if I can get this up, there it is. And uh, so Albert Speer took his inspiration from this, from the altar it was given. Now, again, we don't have time to go into this, but if you look into uh, the root of the Nazi movement, you'll, you'll find it tied back to a sun cult, and you'll find that it's, it's, it's absolutely replete with the occult. Absolutely replete with the occult. I don't think this is any coincidence. You know, I'm, I'm, um, you know I don't like to talk, speak too much about sensationalism. You know, I'm a council member of the PWMI movement, and uh, you know, one of the things that we have to caution against is, is silly speculation. But this is not silly speculation. This is looking and seeing. There's a there's an occult theme, and uh, I absolutely believe Satan had his hand upon that movement. There's no doubt about it in my mind. Just as there's no doubt about it in my mind that God had his hand upon this country and was able. Uh, God was the one that protected this country in the Battle of Britain and other battles. You can you can see that time and time again. So uh, Spear took his took his um, his his. Uh, um, Designed from the altar of Zeus, this was used. This, <laughs> I've just thrown in this here for fun, but this is Bar- this is Barack Obama's, uh, um, whatever you think about Barack Obama. But <laughs> this is his initial acceptance speech in 2008 for the DNC presidential nomination, and he and he's doing this from a, a near perfect replica of the throne of Satan, Satan's seat. So I'll leave that in there and move on. <laughs> So, um, here's some other um, things that I'll, I'll put in there. After the, the, uh, the relics of, of the altar of Zeus or Satan's throne were moved, so uh, in, in early 1900s, after it was put up, uh, you'll find the First World War broke out. <laughs> the second time it was put up, 1930s, the Second World War broke out. If you want to go and see it now in the Berlin Museum, you can't because it's under restoration. This is true. 2025, it goes live. So if 2026, there's there's a war that breaks out. You know, you know what you know what's caused it. Right. Moving on. Uh, so what else? What does the Lord command them for? You know, He knows where they are. They're in amongst it. We're in the battle, and he knows that. He also says, and they hold us fast my name. And that's in verse 13. And, and, and I think that's beautiful also, because in a place where Satan's work is rife, in a place where the name of Satan under another guise is Zeus or whatever it is, is declared all day long up and down the streets, and there's idolatry left, right, and center. These people are known for holding on and holding fast to his name. And that is to be commended. And what a name it is. The name above all names. The name why there is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. What a beautiful name it is. And they held fast to that name. Holding firm to the conviction that he's Lord. You know, carrying the name of Jesus isn't a badge to join a club. 
It's holding fast to a profession that he is Lord. He is King. He is the divine one. He is the creator, the sustainer, and he's the returning king. And it's more than just a badge. You know, I'm a follower of Jesus. No, that name, that powerful name, is one that we hold to with conviction that he is exactly who he said he is. And we hold on to that name. And the people at Pergamos, they held fast to his name. And what, a, what an amazing, amazing thing for them to hear as the Lord himself says that to them. You know, I know your works. I know where you're dwellest. I know you're in the midst of it. But you've held fast to my name. And then he says, and you've not denied my faith. See, it was more than head knowledge for these people. It was heart knowledge. They hadn't denied him. It would be easier for them to to deny him. But they didn't. And the Lord goes on and he calls out this martyr by name. He says, even in those days wherein Antipas, this is verse 13 of Revelation 2, was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. So again, the Lord says, where Satan's seat is, where Satan dwelleth. He says that twice, so he doesn't say it lightly. But here we're introduced to Antipas, the faithful martyr. His name um, in, in the Greek means against, that's anti, and pass means all. And what a testimony he left, that he was called out by the Lord as being a faithful martyr in such a place. Um, when you look into, into uh, early church history about what happened to Antipas, it's absolutely awful. So this altar of Zeus, one of the things that they would do where they would have this um, hollow bronze bull where they would do uh, sacrifices at. And, you know, it was a place of idolatry and it was a place of fornication. Those two things go hand in hand. You'll see that uh, throughout the occult. And what they did was um, they had this hollow bronze bull and they, they got Antipas and they tied him up and they put him in the bull and uh, basically laid a fire and boil him alive. And the way that they put him in, they would put his head in where the bull's head was. And because there was hollow pipes in this bull, you would hear the screams of the man being boiled alive. And of course, that was entertainment. It was like the bull was alive. And that's, that's the death that er- the early church history records for Antipas. And the Lord marks him down, calls him out by name, and says he was a faithful martyr and and it says in 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 the accounts of Antipas he was given opportunity to deny the Lord and he refused and went to that death faithfully and and what a faithful martyr he was and the Lord commands him and he commands the people there that there are those that are holding fast to the Lord's name there are faithful people there that are up against it they are in the place where Satan is running rife so that's the commendation What then, secondly, about the condemnation? Because, verse 14, the Lord says, but, and of course, you know, if, again, I have to, in my mind, I always go back to the fact that this, the church is gathered and they hear this for the first time. And they've just heard about Ephesus, the drifting church. And then they've just heard about uh, uh, Smyrna, the delightful church. And then it comes to them. And, and they get a word of commendation. Things are going well. But then comes that little three-letter word. But. But. I've got something against you. What is it the Lord has against them? He says, 
thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. What's the doctrine of Balaam? Well, this brings us back to the Old Testament. It brings us back to Balaam, where Balak was the king of Moab. Balaam was the prophet of God who turned traitor, really, to secure worldly gain and kingly favors. He's symbolic with compromise. Um, Balaam is really representative as the prototype of all corrupt uh, teachers. And he is symbolic of that. And, you know, again, these believers... Uh, when we're dealing with this Old Testament concept, we're, we're, we're marrying it and bringing it forward into the church age, into the church of Pergamos. We're talking about a time where um, spiritually we've got a divided church, if you like, when we're, we're talking about this going forward. It's really dealing with what I believe is compromisers, those that would compromise between church and state. And, uh, you know, this has happened, it's happened, it will happen. Um, anybody that's been um, through, through communism... A lot of uh, friends in Romania, obviously, tell me a lot of stories about about how it was whenever, you know, in Romania, when uh, Ceausescu, I think it was, was in power and, and, and there was a lot of communists there. And basically there was a marrying of church and state and, and, and the church pastors, um, um, a lot of them reported in and gave reports upon their congregations. And those that um, didn't that really had to have an underground church because there was this marrying of church and state. And uh, Balaam is, 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 is pictorial of that, and that's what the Lord calls out uh, the church at Pergamos. They had it then, and the church as a whole will go on to have it uh, throughout church history, really. And they'll have this compromise between uh, church and state, and Balaam here, I think, points to that. Because a compromise between church and state, as we see, we'll see, uh, leads us to the place where idolatry comes in. We're going to look at this when we, when, when, when the, the church universal, which was Catholic, and Rome married, then what happened was you had a, a plethora of Roman gods, and you had the Christian one god, and, and how were these two going to be compatible, because it was a political move? Well, they had to come together, and, and what you'll find, you, you can see this clearly, is you'll see the Roman gods become saints, and, and we have this saint system that's set up to appease. But what's going on? It's really idolatry. It's a marrying of church and state. It's a marrying of other ideas into the truth of the gospel. So, Idolatry in any form is dis- disloyalty to God, and Balaam is representative of it. So the Lord calls the church of Pergamos out in that. He says, I, uh, Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling back before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Again, there's always a connection between idolatry and fornication. That's why in Acts chapter 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, um, you know, they're sent away to go to the Gentiles, and it said to them, uh, but write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication, from things strangled and from things blood. Pollution of idols and fornication because they were associated one with another. So the Lord calls out those that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Then, verse 15, the Lord also calls out them that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And we've looked at this before, and really this brings us to the the, the idea of a a uh, two-class system within the church. And we do, we get that when we go into the divided church 
era, we get this, this, this divide and we get clergy and laity. With the clergy up here and the laity down here. And this is what I believe the Lord is teaching. He hates that. And um, we're, we are all equal before the Lord. And uh, the Lord has, in his grace, called some into uh, ministry. But, you know, flesh and blood, no different. Just, just the privilege of having that calling upon their lives. Um, so we get to the divided church age and we'll find, and you know, we look to it even today, that this system of clergy and laity is, is in full bloom. And um, this one of the things that marks us out as Baptists is we believe in the priesthood of the believer, that everyone is equal in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, we say yeah and amen to that because we believe it's, it's biblical. biblical. So that's the condemnation that you hold to the doctrine of Balaam and hold to the doctrine of Nicolaitan. So notice that the condemnation is doctrinal. It's doctrinal. So that means doctrine's important to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to him because he's called this church out on their doctrinal drift. It should be important to us if it's important to the Lord. What's the correction? It's pretty simple. Uh, verse 16, Revelation 2, repent. <laughs> Just repent. Turn. Change. Look at the direction you're going and, 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 and make a change. It's simple, straightforward, no beating about the bush. And the Lord doesn't regard sin lightly and he doesn't lightly deal with sin. He tells the church at Pergamos that they are to repent. And he issues then this challenge. He says, repent or else. Here's the challenge. I will come unto thee quickly and I will fight against them. Notice them, not the church. Them. That's important. Who is this? It's the false teachers. It's those that come in and, 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 and muddy the waters within the church. Those that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Those that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And the Lord says, personally, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So again, he goes back to the concept of the sword, knowing that the place was Pergamos with the right of the sword. The Lord says, once again, he says, I'm going to come with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to come quickly. And what a challenge that is. What about the comfort? And there is comfort. The Lord always leaves with comfort, and we thank him for that. Verse 17 he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone, and the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saveth he that receiveth it. So the first uh, word of comfort the Lord gives is, is this hidden manna. Uh, manna in scripture is always indicated with God's provision, God's blessing. Um, so what's hidden manna? Well, God's blessing, I think, for those that are walking in faith, that's going to be revealed to them uh, by the Spirit. Um, so the church at Pergamos, those that were faithful to his name, faithful uh, and did not deny the faith, were to receive the hidden manna, the blessing and provision of the Lord. And why was that important? Because Remember, we're going to talk about a period where there's an opportunity to compromise. There's a period where there's an opportunity to come alongside the state and the state will provide for you. 
and not to go along with the state regime is to step out and, and really to face the wrath of the state. And one of the things that would have been at the foremost of believers' minds in that period in church history would have been what? Just being able to feed themselves, to provide for themselves. And the Lord says, as a word of comfort, to him that overcometh will I give on to eat of the hidden manna. And so it's really just a comfort of the Lord's provision and the Lord's blessing that it will be hard and it will be difficult, but I am with you and I will provide. Then the Lord goes on to say that he would uh, give him a white stone. What's this white stone? Well, again, we have to look contextually in the literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation that we're using. We go back to the time and see what the white stone would have meant to those that were hearing it for the first time all those years ago. And there are several uh, well-known customs with the white stone uh, from around that time. Again, Pergamos was the capital of the judicial uh, the judicial capital of that province in Rome and they were acquainted with the custom of judges using black and white stones to pronounce uh, their decisions white stood for acquittal and black uh, stood for condemnation so again we we can see the application there that the Lord may be pointing to to those believers um, white stones were also given to gladiators at the time who were victorious in in their contents or contests and the name of the victor was then inscribed on the white stone and this entitled him to special privileges and uh, including maintenance at public expense for the remainder of his life the, the stone was called the pebble of victory so again there's another little uh, context that may be used to bring comfort to these people it was also uh, an ancient custom to give uh, a person who was uh, initiated into any of the uh, societies or, 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 or um, and any of the mysteries, they were given a white stone and that white stone was engraved with a secret name of his God which he learned for the first time engraved in the stone and then the stone and the name must be kept secret under pain of death. So all those little customs that were used at the time for this white stone. But regardless, what the Lord is saying, he's saying, I will give you hidden manna, I will give you the white stone. To those people at that time, it's what they needed to hear in the difficulties that they were going to face. It's what we need to hear in the difficulties that we might face. That the Lord is faithful. That he is victorious. That he has us. That he's acquitted us of our sins. That he has uh, given us a new name. That he will provide for us because he said he would. And we need to be reminded of that when the difficult times come. So the church at Pergamos it faced difficult times. They were surrounded by pagan beliefs. It was the place where Satan's seat was, where Satan dwelled. It was a place where they had to fight for their faith. It was a place where some had compromised and had, had gone over to the easy path rather than taking the hard path. They'd fallen for the doctrine of Balaam. They'd fallen for the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And Satan was having his time there. But there was faithful people and when we look at this and as i've said this is this is gives us a panorama of church history 
I really believe that it does. And we've looked at the apostolic church in Ephesus. We've looked at the early church in Smyrna. And here we're now looking at this period in church history where the Roman Catholic Church comes along. Because if you remember last week, we looked at the 10 days of tribulation and how I said to you there was 10 uh, emperors that came along. Diocletian was the last one. And then after him along comes Constantine. And uh, what happens is Constantine is contending for Rome with uh, Maxientos. And tradition says that that, uh, Constantine, before one of the the big battles, he saw a vision in the sky of a cross. This is recorded that this was his vision. He saw a a cross bearing the inscription in Latin, Hoc Signo Vinces, meaning the sign of the conqueror. This is also the if you're interested in this stuff, the Knights Templar badge in uh, the American Order of the Knights Templar. And he uh, seen this and took this as a message that if he won the battle, that he would convert to Christianity. He won the battle, um, Rome became his, and what he did then was he entered into a time where rather than the church being persecuted, and again, the persecution was, was making the church grow, and we've looked at the tactics of the enemy Uh, persecution doesn't work then infiltration comes along what happens is Constantine looks at it and he marries the state Rome and its religion with Christianity and Christianity becomes the popular thing and it's the easy thing to become a Christian if you become a Christian according to Christianity as set down by the Romans that's Roman Catholicism and you get this marriage of these uh, pagan gods Saturn and Jupiter and all these and they're brought in and they're, they're, they're polished up and they're presented as saints and Roman Catholicism is born and it's a division it marks a stage in church history where there's compromise between church and state and here's a hill that I absolutely will die on that the state has no authority over the body of Christ none None. And it's foolish. You know, we work with the state, no problems. But we will never work for the state. Never. While I'm pastor here, that, that, that will not happen. And I hope there are many that are stand with me. Now, we're not going to go out, and we're not going to start burning cars, and we're not going to start insurrection. Not yet. But we're ready, Arma William. If we have to, we're ready. <laughs> we won't. But it's dangerous because it's compromise. It's compromise. Because the state is, is the state. And the state wants to do things its way. And we're living in a world where there is going to be choices have to be made. Where the state will want us to say and do things a certain way. They won't like some of the things that are being preached from this book. They won't like our stance on marriage. And they'll want us to do things a different way. And our answer to that is that the state has no authority over us. Our authority is the word of God. Now, we don't live lawless. We don't run about like crazy people. But when the word of God, which is a higher law than any law in this land, says one thing, we stand on that and we do not move from it. And that's the lesson we learn from the church at Pergamos, is to stand fast in the faith, to not be divided, to not fall for compromise. Because compromise leads to further compromise, leads to further compromise, leads to fall. Many denominations have gone down that road. They've intertwined with the state and they've paid the price. 
Many pastors are political. Uh, I've got into politics. Uh, look at Ian Paisley, who was a tremendous preacher of the word of God. And he got into politics and he destroyed his testimony in that. You say, well, oh, he did great things in politics. That's fine. But that's not what he was called to be. He was called to be a preacher of the word of God. And he let go. He compromised. And, and, and really, it came back to haunt him. There's no, there's no doubt about it. But what are we to do? We're to look at this church all those years ago. We're to learn the lessons and we're to make a stand upon the name of Christ. We're to hold fast to the faith, even if that means that we're called to be an Antipas. We might be. We might be. I don't know if we're ready for that. The only way to be ready for that is to hold fast upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not to go out, we're not to start fights, but we are to speak the truth in love and not to be ashamed to do that. We shouldn't be combative, we shouldn't be antagonistic, we should go looking for trouble. But we stand our ground upon the word of God, we draw our lines in the sand, that we speak the truth in love and we preach the gospel unedited, undiluted, unwatered down, as is presented in the scriptures, and we stand upon that. So the message tonight, as we look at the divided church, is not let the state come in and tell us how to operate. Let's stand upon the word of God in a godly way and be the people God has called us to be. And then maybe one day, Maybe one day the Lord will have a word of commendation for us, just like he had for Antipas all those years ago when he says, well done, a good and faithful servant. Let's pray.